a lot of organizations, you find people who feel isolated, who feel not cared for or alone. And so they just keep going to another place, searching to see if they can find that. And the thing that I used to think what drove outstanding sales organizations were strategy, organization, structure, processes, tools, comp plans, things like that. Underlying all of it, it's feeling value. It's your culture, belief, and values. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Dave Brock. And Dave is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Dave Brock is founder and CEO of Partners in Excellence, a leading sales consulting firm that helps its clients outperform and outsell their competitors. My other guest today for this very lively discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and increasing win rates include Molly McKinstry. Molly is head of sales at Calendly. And also joining us are Mitch Little. Mitch was formerly senior vice president for worldwide client engagement at Microchip. Now he's the founder of Cusp, a human engagement advisory firm. Now, one listener note before we jump into today's discussion. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to my newsletter. It's called Win Rate Wednesday. And each Wednesday, over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders receive one actionable tip to accelerate their win rates and a bunch of other great sales advice too. To subscribe, visit my website. That's andypaul.com. Sign up right on the homepage. All right, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome to this episode of the Win Rate Podcast. It's always the an all-star group of guests joining me today. Actually, a couple people I've never met before. So I'm excited about this. So if we just go around circle and have people circle as I looking at it, spend a few seconds talking about themselves. Molly, we'll start with you. Yes, happy to. Hello, I'm Molly McKinstry. I am the head of sales at Challenge Previously, I spent over a decade at Glassdoor, where I was most recently the vice president of global sales, overseeing all sales segments across North America and Europe. My passion is leading and scaling revenue teams to maximize outcomes for the business and directly impacting an organization's ability to grow, invest, reinvest, and scale. Thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure to have you. And uh, yeah, I will give a shout out for Calendly. I'm totally dependent on it. Love no it. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch. Yes. Good day. My name is Mitch Little. I am uh, retired. I retired from a little company called Microchip Technology uh, last May. I've spent 54 years in this electronics industry that uh, I left after being in it for a lifetime. Uh, primarily semiconductors, manufacturing, sales, uh, marketing, uh, all things necessary. So microchip technology, a manufacturer of semiconductors, one of the most successful organizations ever created. 30 consecutive quarters of profitability as I left. And I had the pleasure of leading 2,000 sales and applications people in their world for a couple of decades. Wow. Wow. And now I'm in the mountains playing golf, having fun. Yeah. 54 years. Wow. That's, yeah. wow. Even longer than I've been on doing this. So Dave. Well, Mitch, you also wrote a terrific book. You might want to claim credit for that. So Dave, can you hear us? Mitch, oh, okay. Yeah. This, I'm Dave Brock. I'm author of sales manager, survival guide, and president of a consulting company called Partners in Excellence. And we do all sorts of things in terms of business strategy, go-to-customer strategies, sales marketing, and all that. 
Perfect. Perfect. Well, Mitch, let me ask you a question, sir, starting as, and actually it's for everybody, but we'll let you start. This is called the Win Rate Podcast. That's one of my passions as a sales leader for so many years myself, as well as this sort of concern that's grown over the last several that, wow, this is a metric that's just not being tracked. And especially in sort of the tech SaaS world is given sort of low priority. And it's sort of interesting. You worked with a very large organization for a long time running sales. Was win rate an important metric for you? In the way that it was measured on a regular basis? No, it wasn't. We didn't really deal with win rates because that deals with the ratios of relationships and a lot of other strange things that really don't matter. What matters is how well you serve the clients that you choose to serve and mm-hmm. how well you engage with them. So we, everyone's got their funnel in their pipeline. Yeah, we had that too. But our world was different. First of all, we were in our last couple of decades where I came from, we were a non-commissioned sales team. We served our clients for the betterment of them, not for our back pockets. So it, right. creates, well, it created a wildly dynamic, different outcome for everything that we did. Win rates were important, but it weren't tracked. What was tracked was what are you really trying to do to help your client serve what the client needs to have done? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to come back and visit, revisit that. Molly. Yeah, I also like that and, and incredibly fascinating. So I think win rates are important to a degree. Uh, of course, I have seen it measured um, in my my experience to this point. But I think what we actually spend more time on is understanding the, the deals we do win, the opportunities that we do win. Why do we win them? And what kind of common denominators or, or common factors can we see through the opportunities that we are earning and that we're successfully closing? Is it the ICP, the persona, the use case, the level of the contact we worked with? How did we kind of leverage a buying or a committee of decision makers internally? So yes, WinRead is a data point. But I actually think it's more important to deeply understand the opportunities that you have won. Mm-hmm. Why did you win them? And how do you go find more of those and replicate that experience as many times over again? And on the flip side, we actually spend a good deal of time analyzing the deals we lose and mm-hmm. why we have lost them. Because there's good intel there as well, right? There's the product intel, certainly. There's kind of just the technical gap or difference that we couldn't overcome. But there is the talent and the actual sales enablement po- points too that we, through a loss anal- analysis, can better understand and learn from. And are you doing that internally or do you engage an outside company to help you with the win-loss analysis? How are you doing that? So we do partner with a company, an organization called Closed, C-O-L-Z-D, and I'm an enormous fan of theirs. I know they've got a lot of really compelling partnerships underway, but our marketing and our product marketing team in partnership with obviously the sales leaders and the customer success leaders do a look back, a postmortem every single quarter of the lost deals and the won deals and understand what are the trends and what can we take forward and apply to the team in the field. First of all, big shout out to Closed because they're a sponsor yes. of this program. And oh, yes. So, yeah, thank you for having the right answer. On, you got it. Uh, you got it. Yes. Uh, yep. So I wanted to talk about how you're using that because we, we had a big discussion about win-loss analysis on a previous episode here. Is So you say you're doing it quarterly and are you looking yes. at all the deals that yeah. you disposition, closed one or closed loss during that period? Yes, you look at all of the deals that you disposition that period. Although I will say 
this is something I really try to empower to my frontline leaders and even second line leaders as well, that while Close is, is an amazing partner and we're lucky to have them, we don't need to wait to quarter end either to right. understand the behavior of, of our opportunities and our pipeline. So we do kind of internal large deal reviews or key deal reviews. And if any of those deals that we have stood in front of the executive team and said, we believe you're going to win this and why, if we don't, or if the timeline gets off track, force as sales leaders, we're accountable to understanding why. And right. bringing that in, that feedback internally to, to product, to marketing, to customer success, so we can figure out how to either get back on track or if it is truly a closed lost opportunity when we feel like we may be able to re-engage. Right. And just break for a second. Hey, Dave, when you're not talking, do you mind keeping on mute when you're not talking? Because your tr- crickets are coming back. Those crickets. But we do still have it slightly. Yeah, we do. Maybe we can't blame Dave. Oh, there it goes. Yeah, uh, let's. Uh oh. All right. So we're going to do a test. Dave, unmute. Molly, you stay muted. Oh my gosh. I'm pointing the finger at you, and it might have been Molly. Oh. Uh, so, Molly, unmute. It's gone, but I did hear the crickets as well. Wow. Okay. So they come back if you're not talking. Just well, mute. Yes. Absolutely. I'll mute. Sorry about that. No um, worries. Okay. So, yeah, good answer on the win loss analysis. Question is who should own this or win loss analysis? Who should own win rates within an organization? Is it because you talked about product marketing? I know from talking with folks at close that a lot of their customers are focused on product marketing. And it's, it's like, how much is sales really on sort of a real-time basis engaging with that data and incorporating it into what they're doing? Go ahead, Molly. Uh, I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy to answer this. So I think the answer I really do have is ev- everybody on the go-to-market function owns it to a degree, but the kind of way they can impact it and the way they own it varies. So from a sales perspective, we own it because we're accountable to the kind of leading with value and coaching the talent that we have who are out there representing for me, mm-hmm. Calendly, in the market. So I own and need to understand where my team is losing opportunities. What can we in sales impact from a coaching and a development perspective? How do we host more thoughtful discovery? How do we get to business impact? How do we present our solution connected to ROI? But Mm -hmm. some of what we're going to find in that win rate analysis is stuff connected to the product itself or how how we're showing up in the market relative to what the customer expects based on whatever need they're having to solve. So it's kind of a a softball answer because I do think many teams in the go-to-market own it, but how we impact that does vary by group. I think for sales leaders, it is directly connected to the people who are out there advocating your product and services in the market. What are they doing to impact and improve win rate? Okay. So I'm going to pivot back to Mitch, Mitch to non-commission-based sales. Yes. So I want to dig into that. So, so first, first of all, Molly's response is a really classically good one. She, I, I own the problem. I'll go solve it. And that's the way it should be. There are a lot of, there are a lot of owners. So I agree. She did a really good job of defining, I think, what the role of sales would be in that particular part. Now, back to your commission. Well, one, yeah. of my, one of my soapboxes, forgive me. Oh, no, I love it. You're on the soapbox. All right. So 20 plus years ago uh, in the semiconductor industry, you, what you saw was as a, 30 years ago, forever ago, a very traditional discussion of a salesperson 
gets a design win at a climate mm-hmm. uh, and they get paid for that accordingly. Right. Well, in times of about 20 plus years ago, that started to change a lot, a lot. Back to, back to in the early 90s into the late 90s, where let's take a cell phone manufacturer, arbitrary one, based in the Bay Area. The design may be done in the Bay Area, but the manufacturing and purchasing of the components would be done in China or Singapore right. or some other spot of the world. So what that caused was the people that were dealing, trying to serve the client stopped serving them because they were not going to get paid for the outcome of that whole transaction. The chip was procured by the the manufacturer outside their territory. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's very classic. Uh, uh, Ordered inside, procured somewhere else, all sorts of strange combinations. But more importantly than that, it changed the the actions of why people were were working with clients weren't holistic to begin with. They were very self-serving. They're about me, my commission, my sales, my dollars. That's why I'm going to do what I want to do for you. Rather than simply looking to help the client, serve the client, do whatever they need to do to help them in even deeper terms, serve their clients, we created a culture that avoided the discussion of compensation and dwelled deeply into how to help our clients serve their clients in ways that matter to them without recognition for where income came from. And all of those discussions went away. And the clients knew we were different somehow. Our conversations were different because we weren't there to talk about bookings and billings and shipments and, and what are you going to buy next week and what's your forecast and what's your rent. Didn't matter. It was being served in another spot, but where you need to serve the client, that all went away. Exceedingly powerful and incredibly powerful. In, in, in an extension of that, what you have is a sales world where it has a 30 and 40% turnover rate is very traditional turnover rates in B2B. Our turnover rate became 2% around the world because it created a culture inside the corporation that was radically different. Okay. Lots of questions around this. I'm sure Molly has some as well. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I can box, it's heavy. For, for I see sir, perched on that as your receipt. So Molly, feel free to chip in with your own questions. But yeah, so you said turnover drop, but did you initially, when you implemented that system, did you have sort of a big wave of turnover? People sort of said, no, this isn't for me. I, and you had to recruit new people in that accepted that culture. Or what was that oh, transition like? Very surprising. We lost at that time, there were about three or 400 people in the organization. We lost three or four in the entire thing because it's how you tell the story. People, salespeople aren't greed motivated. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose are the reasons people do right. things. And, and that's the reality there. You gave them autonomy to do the job, mastery of the outcome, and a purpose that was deeper than revenue. Is about how to help the people that are around you do what they need to do. And that became incredibly powerful. So it, it was, we didn't really know where we were going to get to. It's the first time it had ever been done. We just knew it was the right thing to do. My CEO and myself did this in our worldwide organization all one time, all one move, and literally lost a handful of people out of that whole equation. And since again, our attrition rates are radically different than almost every business to business model that's out there were. I'm no longer part of that. Forgive me. I sure. still say our, but, but no, no, I understand. Well, you were there for a long time. Yeah. Now did prior to making this change, were your attrition rates more typical of sales organizations? I don't know that we ever monitored much, but we knew at that point there was a risk. So we started monitoring then yeah. we just, there was, I would say it was probably pretty traditional because it was a 60, 40 split of commission and salary. And there's always turnover in that structure. Right. And it was, it was a fairly young organization at that time. 
So, but after that, we knew that was, what are the risks? What are the issues? What can we, what do we need to watch? And we watched that very closely. And that became then part of the overall corporate culture in general about how you do what you do. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com demo. So Molly, if you showed up at your sales meeting on Monday and made the announcement that commissions are a thing yeah. of the past, that mm-hmm. you're changing the culture of the organization, what would happen? What would happen? I resonate, what Mitch said, I resonate with a lot of that. And I think that what I hear the core of this decision is being customer obsessed and putting the customer at the center of what the sales organization is accountable to. And that I completely agree with. And I I think it would be hard pressed to find someone who's truly passionate about sales that would not agree. The other thing that comes to mind is I believe the reason people are drawn to sales as a career is because they are very empowered by the idea of being in control of their earning potential. And some people think we're totally crazy because we want to be in control of our earning potential versus having a higher guarantee. But I think for people who truly have a passion for the the craft, that is one of the things they love most about it. So I, I would have to better understand how this looks exactly. And what do as long as there is a way to incentivize and drive the right behaviors and that overperformance and to have people feel like I'm not going to limit and put a ceiling on what they are able to earn for being customer obsessed and putting the customer at the center of what we do. I I think my answer is, tell me more. I wouldn't, after hearing Mitch share this, say I'm prepared to go tell my team I'm making this change on Monday. 
But certainly, I want to lead sales organizations that are customer obsessed, that feels like at the end of the day, our role is to provide a solution for prospects and customers that's going to help them solve the real business problem that they have. So one of the keys to this is actually having metrics and objectives that that empower everyone universally rather than individually. We have a variable. We had a variable part of compensation, but it was corporate objectives and corporate goals, not Mm -hmm. me goals and my back pocket goals. And everyone in the corporation shared in that outcome equally. Everyone had the same connection to win for the client, for the corporation. And it's a big variable. It is. So and and there's a a lot to work with in that space. Yeah. The thing I will say, I can see this being very powerful from a culture perspective, again, because you're kind of galvanizing around the the customer at the center of what we do and everything that all of us have to wake up and solve for is how to make our customers happier. Our chief customer officer, Tina Doby, always says retention is growth. And so keeping your customers and having them coming back and not leaving you and picking a competitor, that is a way to grow your business. So I like that element of it. And I also think just the, and I know Andy, you spoke about this on a recent episode of your podcast that now it's not just sales selling, right? We have mm-hmm. technical uh, resources and solution engineers and customer success support. We have product advocates. We have way more team members who are a part of the sale. So to Mitch's, the spirit of what you're saying. I could get there. I'm just, I'm not ready to tell my team we're doing this on Monday. <laughs> yeah, it does take quite a bit of discussion and we had that. Yeah. Yeah. So Dave, what do you think? Dave's been there with me on this journey. Yeah. The, the microchip organization is a very special and very unique organization, both the, the sales organization and what Mitch and how they transformed how they engage their customers and created value with the customers. I, I always used to joke with them is they sold time to product release and time to profitability and shipped semiconductors. But, but when you saw that and you walked into the organization, you did see a true team collaborative atmosphere and, and things like that. When I, if I get back to kind of almost the commission issue and, and so on, the big problem I, I see with too many sales organizations is too many sales leaders think the only performance metric that, or the only performance they have is they're going to manage everything through comp. And pretty soon you start seeing overly complex comp plans that say, well, if you send out this many emails a week and do this many phone calls and do this much in your quota, you have to be have a PhD in statistical analysis and mathematics to kind of figure out what complex is. And there's so many different things drive performance. And the thing that I always get distressed about, 90% of the sales executives work with is the complex. And you give examples of what Mitch has done, what so many other organizations have done, and is you're just performing, you're pulling all the wrong performance levers. You're not looking, one, how you create value with the customer to drive wins really high, mm-hmm. how you're creating value for each person on the teams. They work to create value with the customer and those kinds of things. And so I think we tend to have it backwards. Mitch and I have our debates. I'm still a commission type. But I really understand what 
they've done, how it fits into their whole engagement strategy with the customer. And it's brilliant. Other organizations I work with are very high performing, very collaborative, and they have some sort of commission or leverage comp. So again, I too much the issue is it's all about comp and nothing else we do. And I think comp is the smallest part of it. Yeah, it's not like it's this is without precedent. I remember Digital Equipment Corporation, Ken Olson, back in the 70s and 80s, they disappeared from the scene somewhat through his result of his hubris. But prior to that, they're quite successful with building a very large organization, selling to large enterprises with no commissions. Team-based selling. Team-based selling. Yeah. So was IBM. Yeah. Well, you guys got paid comp at IBM, though. Yeah. Yep, yep, right? yep. Yeah. Not a whole lot, but. <laughs> Not a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you've always been underpaid. No, my manager's always said your increase will become effective when you are. Ooh. Zing. Good manager. Yeah. So how do you, in an environment where you're not paying commission, how do you incentivize, as a Molly's point, the behavior changes, or the right behaviors, let's say, that you want you know, throughout your organization, not just sales, but sales sure. engineering, blah, 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 everybody that's customer-facing? The challenge becomes, because as Dave said, most managers, not leaders, most managers will default to the human manipulation that commission actually creates, which is what it does. It creates the human condition where you manipulate a person's actions based on what you want them to earn and what you want them to do. The reality is to do this really well. And Microchip's not the only company. There's a whole list of very large, successful companies that have done this, but it, it takes leadership and true leadership and true understanding of how to motivate people, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And that doesn't matter whether you're an accountant in, in, in bookkeeping or whether you're quality control or whether you're a salesperson. Those three metrics are the same things regardless for all of us because it really, you, people are not coin-operated as much as we think they are. They may respond to it, sure, because it's right in front of them. But if you remove that as a barrier and allow them to rise to a higher level of service to others, as the primary purpose of all things, that's what really gets them going. That's what really gets them up to, to doing a job that's much more difficult. That ability to create a difference for others that others value more than what I'm doing is incredibly powerful. And <laughs> that's a very deep discussion to have. And you've got to lead that discussion. You don't manage it with metrics and numbers. You got to do it from the heart and the soul and in front of people and with them. And it's doable. Again, Little companies, Disney is a non-commissioned sales team. Boeing is a non-commissioned sales team. Lexus is a non-commissioned sales team. Kaiser Permanente, there's a bunch of them out there that in our time have figured this out. I spent quite a bit of time in front of boards of directors explaining, well, you, you want to get rid of commission? Seriously? You, okay, here's what and where and why. <laughs> and by the way, of course, there's a risk. There's a risk to doing anything that's great and anything that's different. And here's the outcome. Well, to your point, though, is I think you get that reaction from the boards is because yeah, they've been there, you know, done it always. Well, but the, their vision of sellers is so unidimensional, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that this whole idea of autonomy, mastery, purpose is just foreign to them? I, sure. One thing that I, yeah, one of the things I sort of slightly different, but sort of somewhat aligned is, you know, we know there's, we see from the data, there's a, pervasiveness of, of mental health issues among sales professionals. And you think, well, geez, how much would it cost to have it on staff, a large enough sales team 
a mental health professional as part of the sales organization. Yeah. Just think of what you'd say through days lost and so on. Easy calculation. There is not, if you could find a CEO, I've brought this up with numbers of people and they look at me like, I'm just freaking crazy, right? Why would we do that? We can't afford to do that. We can't afford to do that. It's like, of course you can afford to do it. How can you afford almost not to do it? But again, sellers, they're just this, they're cannon fodder in the, in the minds of most leaders, right? We actually but, but, built but, that back into our Salesforce enablement team and process was exactly that. The consultative dealing with your peers and the challenges of your daily life. That became, right. as Dave knows, the people, that was their job of how to engage with everyone and deal with the problems that they're having in their world because it was about people to people. Molly. I think that this is a really timely conversation, especially because many sellers, at least in tech, have an opportunity and are working remotely and are not working on a sales floor next to their peers that maybe the experience, Mitch, you're referencing at, at Microchip or David IBM. And they are, there is this feeling of isolation. I think the connection to the greater kind of cause that you are representing on behalf of the company is easier to feel disconnected to. And I have been a remote leader since 2016. So I, I spend a lot of time and listen and, and read a lot on how to motivate, inspire, and create the things that Mitch, you're referencing to sellers who some may be early in their sales career yeah. who are doing it alone from their home without listening to their peers and getting the experience of seeing their peers every single day that I think is a really important way of the typical how to foster that energy and that connection to the business. So this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about, and it, it is a real challenge. And it's something I'm reminding my sales leadership team of all the time that we have to go above and beyond for connection and recognition and coaching and feedback. We don't sit with our sellers every day. And mm -hmm. we, a, a part of our job, I think a critical part of our job is making sure we've connected with everybody live in some capacity every single day. And that's kind of a crazy, right? Like we have to remind ourselves that, but we do. And I think it's a real thing in such a, a remote, heavy kind of world post-pandemic we're living in. Yeah, it, but I, I think that there's really an important point where, again, I think we're at a crisis point in the profession is if you stand looking at the data and you start looking at average tenure of a salesperson and the sales manager, is 11 months. Attrition rates, I see in many organizations, over 50%. Yeah. I start sitting there and doing the math saying, gee, in complex B2B, is it takes, what, six to nine months to onboard somebody. Sales cycles are 12 to 18 to maybe longer. And we have 11 months, 10 years. And I start saying, wait a second, that math doesn't work. But look at what's driving that is, is, you know, we are creating places where people feel valued, feel heard, and, and feel like they can contribute in a meaningful way. So they go looking someplace elsewhere. If you look at, again, I'm such a fan of Microchip and the work that Mitch and his team have done. Is when you look at running, what, 10 plus billion dollar organizations, one of the most successful technology organizations, if you look at the profitability over the last 150 quarters, blah, 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 is 2% attrition. 
2% attrition also in a day where a lot of semiconductor growth was done through acquisition. How do you acquire other companies, create an environment where people feel heard, feel included, and want to be part of the team and contribute each other's success and the customer's success? I don't see very much when I go around to a lot of organizations who feel people who feel isolated, feel not cared for or alone. And so they just keep going to another place, searching to see if they can find that. And the thing that I used to think what drove outstanding sales organizations were strategy, organization, structure, processes, tools, comp plans, things like that. Underlying all of it is feeling it's your culture, belief, and values. And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's US data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it, get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. Yeah. One thing I, a well, question I want to dig into, I love Mitch's autonomy, mastery, purpose, and not just because it's my initials, but it makes it memorable that way. But a Dan, Dan Pink gets credit for that. That's a Dan Pink terminology. So. Yeah. One of the things that's that I see again through the organizations and sellers and leaders I talk to is this dramatic diminishment in autonomy yeah. with sellers these days. Is that, and I'm going to sort of place the blame on more broadly, sort of on the way SaaS selling is being implemented, which it's just so activity driven, right? And we're talked to it blue in the face, and it hasn't fundamentally changed. Yes, there are some organizations I'm sure like Molly's that do it very well, but in the main, right? It's the exceptions notwithstanding is, is people just feel like they're a cog in a machine. And Dave, I did this when you started and Mitch, when you started, and when I started, I very remember during the interview or maybe immediately after, but it was right in that period of time. It's like, Hey, you're going to be given a territory. That's your business, right? That's your company. You develop that. You're responsible for delivering from that. And that ethos just seems to be missing completely. Yeah, I've right. talked so few sellers that feel like they're in charge of their business. Instead, no, I'm a master to my metrics, to the activity metrics. And in that environment, how would we expect people to respond other than, yeah, we'll pick up and leave, right? Because there's only so much of that I can take. And Molly, you're you know, nodding your head up and down. But Yes, yes. I, th- I love this conversation. I think it's an incredibly fascinating one. And yes, I am lucky to lead a sales organization where I feel like we are not 
micromanaging down to the the metric and the activity. And but I, I do think that what you're saying is fair and true because we have all this technology, right? That every call is recorded and there's a leaderboard for everything. And especially in remote cultures where the only way we can really see the work of our peers is through the data that we all have access to through the tools that we're leveraging. But I still am very much a firm believer of you are the CEO of your business, or we say you are the mayor of your town, and Mm -hmm. you are accountable to driving results. And these are, I very much love and embody the belief that we do need to show you the, we need to show you and have you have the belief and the conviction that the goals we've set are achievable. And if you do these things, and if you do them consistently and you have the discipline to make the dials and spend the time outbounding and follow up on your hand raisers, you will get to those outcomes. But I I am not subscribing to the belief that I, I have to know the number of emails you've sent every day or the number of phone calls that you've made because you're an adult and you wouldn't be at this organization or have gotten this job if you didn't have that accountability and kind of self-intrinsic motivation on your own. Now, of course, you see that not all sellers hit their quota. Not everybody delivers the outcomes. And that does necessitate the conversation of, Mm. okay, we're not getting to the outcome. So let's talk about the inputs. Let's talk about how you're spending your time. Let's talk about what you are doing to 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 try to drive pipeline. But I do think, and I'm, I, I may not be old school in all the ways, but I very much still subscribe to you're the mayor of your town. And if you got this job, then I believe you are an accountable adult who, who knows this is going to take hard work and effort and you're going to do those things to be successful. Following up on a, a sort of thread you talked there about developing pipeline and so on is, and back to conversation we sort of started at the beginning about win rates and so on, is, yeah, I'm spending a bunch of time with companies these days really delving into their win rates. Surprising how few really don't even begin to understand the ramifications of their win rates. But one of them is we have this sort of, I don't know, I call it an obsession with pipeline. Because I think if your win rates are at 20%, there was a survey that came out in a book a year or so ago, said average win rates for B2B were 17%. Um, but I'll just round it up to 20. If your win rate's 20%, pipeline's not your problem. Your problem is selling. Your problem is helping the buyer make a decision to make a change in their business. And yet, if you, when you spend any amount of time on LinkedIn, look at the, the posts that I do, it's from my industry, I guess, is you would think that the biggest problem we have in the world is pipeline. And I think the biggest problem is the inability to close the opportunities we have. But that's the thing that, that too many people do is they manage to the number and they don't understand what drives the number. They don't get underneath. Mm-hmm. What's creating this 20% win rate? Molly, oh, sure. said a few, Molly said a few minutes ago, CP and qualification. Are we doing the right job there? Um, are we targeting the right customers or, or is Mitch so passionate about are we helping the customers solve their problem and solve it as quickly as they possibly can? Mitch, Mitch, Mitch's value proposition was you know, time to market and time to profitability. How mm-hmm. do we get you to design and release your products more quickly? And how do we get you to profitability in that product line more quickly? And so most managers deal with 
no conception of going to people, your win rate's 20%. What do you do? Got to get out and prospect. We need three pipeline. So, IVEX, in that case. IVEX, yes. No, they say we need three X pipeline. And, and I said, well, gee, the math doesn't work on that. But but sales methodology is that you always have to have three X pipeline. Or in the example that Molly and Dave have $5 million paintings, we each have $10 million pipelines. Molly has a 40% win rate. Dave has a 20% win rate. How do you coach them? And they say, go out and prospect 3X pipeline. <laughs> and, and I said, Molly is a pretty good seller. If you start getting it, she doesn't need 3X pipeline. But she got out there prospecting. If you forced her to, to get that 3X pipeline, her win rate will go down because you're distracting her from what she does so well. And Dave sucks. <laughs> it's not about going out to get more pipeline, as you mentioned earlier, it's about teaching Dave house. Well, and one of the things that just sort of infuriated me this week, actually it was last week from the time of recording this, is a CRO of a very prominent SaaS company saying, ooh, in a tech downturn, it's all about efficiency. And we have to be efficient. I'm saying, so you mean so you can be really efficient in losing the vast majority of your opportunities? Is that what you Quite want? Here. Okay, there wasn't, wasn't, wasn't one word about effectiveness, right? Don't worry about if you know how to sell your product. And I wrote about this a couple of years ago. I said, what we seem to have is there's a cycle, do more, do better, do different. So we're cutting this do more loop, which is the scaling loop and an, an efficiency loop. Every once in a while, when all of a sudden things start breaking down, they start saying, well, gee, maybe I can do better. I can start improving. <laughs> If they do that, then they go back to the do more loop, but eventually all that breaks down and all of a sudden you have to start innovating and you start having to do different. Well, and now we find ourselves in a world that's fear-driven, where very few organizations have courage to do something that is truly unique and truly different. So Mm -hmm. we go back to doing the same things we've always done, which is to count the number of calls, count the number of quotes count the number of bids, do more, they just do more. Nobody cares about doing better. No one cares about doing better that I can talk to, but everybody wants to do more and get more. But how? Well, just do more. Okay. Yeah. There's the work, but we're stuck. We're stuck in that mud right now. Oh, we are. And it's, this is one of my frustrations. You deal with companies. It's, I have a similar expression, I think, today, which is, yeah, if you want to sell more, the first step is you have to learn how to sell better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And yet you have all these companies talking about we're going to scale. Well, you're scaling a 20% win rate. Why are you right. doing that? Why don't you, let's get our win rate up to 40%. Then let's scale that. Cause then we actually know that we know how to sell this product. We know how that we connect to the buyers and how to solve a buyer's problem at 20%. We don't know. Yeah. Well, I think it directly connects back to the opening question of what win rates, why do they matter and do we track them? And I had shared that we spend a lot of time understanding when we've won, why Hmm. did we win? What did we do? And you typically find you get to the pain, the business impact, you get to how we are going to drive value. It's not feature dumping. It's not like, like, show me my shiny product. It's understanding what you as a prospect care about, what problem is preventing you from being successful and then positioning your solution to solve that problem. And when when your team does that successfully and that's why you're winning deals, 
that's selling better because you connect it back to the very, very start of the sales funnel at the that first discovery conversation. Well, well the that's not the conver- that's not the conversation that most sales leaders have. Most sales leaders have a conversation. Oh, let me do a deal review to see what we need the client to do next to make sure we get that deal. Not what we can provide. What are we can get them to do? And it's a yeah. I, they're lost. They're just lost. Yours is a unique one. No, yeah. well, I'm glad. And I actually just had a, a conversation with Nick Sigelski, who you all may know, but he said, yeah. and I love this advice, which is you want to get to know on the opportunities that are going to be as fast as you can. Do not waste time in the in the maybe and focusing on just getting that next meeting or booking that next step because you need to actually know, do you believe my solution can solve your problem? And are you willing to invest money in doing that? And the sooner you get clarity on that question, the the sooner you have confidence in your pipeline. It's not just about 3-4x coverage and your win rate's going to change from 20%. Yeah, your sellers should know and should know, should have a good idea. The answer is why is this customer going to buy from us before you bring it into your pipeline? That's yes. a qualified opportunity. That's you as a seller, you have to have some sense as to why you're the one that they want to do business with. And if there's reason, reason if there's no no reason that stands out, then you're just gonna be end up in a price competition, right? Just one of a, the horde of nameless, faceless sellers they're talking to. Another aspect, and it goes some of the work that Molly's doing in terms of understanding what it means is what I'm in a very typical company, an okay, not great one rate, 42%. We're just starting to analyze what they did. And it was interesting, their average deal size the deals they won was 50% average deals and the average sales cycle deals they won is 30% the average deals deals lost and they were spending no time they were spending all the time talking about we have a great win rate blah 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 look at this and this yeah hey, your win rate's okay Look at this. It's selling deals. Right. And you suck for a very long time. Right. Well, that's, that's why I get Imagine what you could do is how you could change your performance. If you start looking again, start understanding what's happening. Yeah. That's part of the reason I said we're embarking with companies on understanding. Yeah. There's like 12 win rates serve on average that we identify for companies. And some are more important than others, to your point, right? And there's a story someone was telling on Fiora <laughs> was a couple of months ago about CRO comes into a monthly meeting and is bragging, oh, 50% win rate. Yeah, they had a 60% win rate on $5,000 deals and a 20% win rate on the $50,000 deals, which they wanted to win. But on the surface, since they don't really dig into it, they thought 50%, we're doing great. But no, there's a level of detail below that. I mean, we're one of the company that, this is a pattern we have seen multiple times now with companies we're working with is they had win rates, days point, serving the 40s, pretty good. And is largely because they were at a stage in their growth or their AEs were self-sourcing the leads and were having good prospects. And then they built their SDR team and they started investing in inbound and outbound marketing and they get this flow of leads. And these same AEs suddenly are at high teens on win rates. 
And it's like, why? What's going on? Same people, right? And it's just, yeah, you got to pay attention to these details because suddenly they were dealing with the different size deals. The deals weren't as large. You know, it was just whole sort of cascade of effects that came through. But so, good. So here's another aspect where I see people just not and understanding things. For instance, our win rates are going, typical reaction to do more. Yep, we yep. don't improve the win rate. We just or, do more right. and so on. And then they say, well, we need more product training don't understand the product and so on and so forth and, and nothing happens we've seen mitch do this microchip we've done this with a number of other clients we change the whole sales paradigm and make it all about service right. we call it because what's interesting is within usually within six months we can double the win rate within probably about nine months we can reduce decision by 50%. And the most counterintuitive is we reduce sales cycle by 40%. Yep. Because what we're doing is we're focusing on what Mitch is such a great spokesperson on is serving the customer. Our customers don't buy. All we do is tell them the product piece, what they should buy, mm -hmm. but we don't know how to buy. So how do we serve it to help them now through their buying process? How do we help do it with greater confidence. How do we help them be more efficient? We're all familiar with the old gardener. Mitch was the inspiration of the old gardener's chart. Mm -hmm. Things go all over the place. And, all, and now what we do by serving the customer, we help them navigate the process very very efficient. And so, so it's magic. And about nine months ago, this informal serve sales and implementers for fairly large organizations. How many of you teach human financial and how many of you teach to serve your customers? And then you start reporting these results. Oh well, no, that can't be true. They've talked to people like me. Sure, they can talk to these other kinds of people. But just when you start seeing the data around just that we see other organizations. I just wonder how can people have attention? Well, get, we can get into the deeper. Yeah. We get into the deeper subject then of what it really boils down to, which is change management and change control within right. a client. Uh, none of this is easy. It's psychologically, you're now trying to talk to people about how to help them make their changes in their world. Do they even understand? Most don't. Most buyers don't know the changes they need to go through. So you've got to get good at that. And that's a, well, a whole other not their job to under, It's not their job to understand the changes. Exactly. Yeah. But that is sort of the first decision a buyer makes, though, is are we going to make a change or not? Irrespective of what the product is going to be, are we going to make a change? And so when we look at sort of the conventional sales processes that exist in, in our world these days, that decision to make a change or not, actually, that encompasses most of your selling process because you have to have, you know, discovery and qualification. You have to have the, the vision of what the buyer is trying to achieve. You have to have the business justification yep. for them to make a decision to change. And then it's like, okay, then how are you going to make this change? But you yeah. talk to leadership at those companies that are, that are selling you stuff and a CEO, don't talk about selling, about changing, just sell. Don't, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, that yeah, doesn't, yeah. That doesn't resonate up, up channel at all. 
that one of the best experiences for me in my career, and I tried to help companies and teach sellers this, is that I, for, and Mitch is probably very familiar to you, is I was working in companies, we didn't have a product. We had a bucket full of technologies, and I had to go out, and then yeah, I got hired to start this division at this one company. And the CEO said, I said, well, who am I selling to? He says, whoever you want. It's just they have to pay for the NRE and production. Oh, that's it? Okay. So, but I got to go out and just, yeah, it was complete greenfield. Go talk to, in my case, big communications companies around the world to see if they had a problem that we could help them. And I think that perspective as a seller, this is why I try to teach sellers, is enter every situation as if you don't have a product to sell. You're just there to identify the problem, help the buyer understand the problem, potential outcomes, and the product's secondary. And in technology, you come from that as well. All products are created equal. Everyone's got perfect products, perfect prices. Perfect. No one's got no one's got a leg up on technology at all on anything all. right now. Right. It's yep. Zero. So if it's not the stuff, what is it? It's, it's what you do that makes a difference, not the stuff you sell. All about what you do. And that's the toughest thing to get corporate leadership to understand. Our technology is superior to all bullshit. It's not. It, it, at best, it's on par. At yeah. best, it's on par. Well, it's table stakes. That's the that's thing. Exactly right. Competitive product, competitive price is table stakes. Yep. The rest is down to the seller. Yep. And Gartner's more recent data and other data that people have shared with me from around the world, win-loss analysis data substantiates that, right? It's the buyer's experience with the sellers that becomes the differentiation. And I think it goes back to what we've referenced several times. It sounds like microchip was an incredibly special culture, but when sellers feel like they have the agency to make it really about curiosity and understanding the business need versus putting in pipeline numbers to get a check in the pipeline review, that I think that's when that becomes a, a snowball effect in the best way because your sellers actually care about the customers, care about the problems that they're solving and take a lot of pride in representing your company in doing that. Absolutely. All you're saying, dude, you're doing all, doing is saying all the right things. Don't stop. No. That's right. Don't think Just all right. I agree. All right. So we've come to the end of our time together. So gosh, I went by very quickly and I want to thank everybody for joining me. Just briefly tell folks that they want to connect with you, how they can do that. Uh, Molly, start with you. Yes, thank you so much. So fun to be here. So Molly McKinstry, you are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email, molly.mckinstry calendly.com. Brog, with me on LinkedIn, blog, partners and influence blog. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's an excellent blog. It, it's one it is reading so yes i read it so Mitch. and and mitchlittle.com is my website you'll see my leadership stuff up there also my passion for photography mitch.littleamac.com but mitchlittle.com is my easy spot all right perfect well thank you everybody this is great and uh, you're Thanks, all welcome to come back at any time okay friends that's it for this episode of the win rate podcast First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. Also, I want to thank my guests, Molly McKinstry, Dave Brock, and Mitch Little for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, 
on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.